Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Before green hydrogen was the topic du jour, before every energy analyst was debating the next two quarters of storage cost declines, the Fish Tank team was entrenched in the clean tech and sustainability sector. Fish Tank brings together industry expertise and a love for storytelling. They're dedicated to putting in the time on media outreach to deliver your company meaningful transactional coverage. Whether your organization is scaling as you go for your Series B or expanding globally and reaching new customers and partners, find out the difference Fish Tank can offer at fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com forward slash canary. reckless with taxpayer money. You have to move that money in an efficient way uh, without corruption or abuse or any of that. And Did Brandon you, you just have become a, a Republican? <laughs> Are, you Are you changing your registration? Or? <laughs> that is not true. <laughs> you know I've always... Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Political Climate, a biweekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. As always, I'm your host, Julia Piper, and today I'm joined by both my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. Brandon is a clean tech investor, policy consultant with Boundary Stone Partners, and a climate advocate. And Shane is an advisor on energy, infrastructure, and environmental policy issues, also at Boundary Stone Partners, as well as a resident expert on all things Capitol Hill. This is actually the first time the three of us have been back on the podcast all together in the new year. So you guys, it's great to see you again. Yeah, Shane, I thought you quit. Like where Shane was trending on Twitter. Oh, you know, <laughs> like there's a lot of tumult on Capitol Hill and someone had to be there to keep everything calm and quiet. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, just, just scheduling conflicts, but so glad to be back with you guys. And this is like my favorite kind of episode. I hope our audience enjoys it as much as we do because reflecting and then sort of projecting is, is a lot, a lot of fun, a lot of punditry. I love it. I know. We're like, we're not pundits. Totally, totally pundits. And Shane, if your job is to try to keep things cool, calm and collected on the Hill, I don't know how that's been going. It's been a little tense watching the things unfold over there. Oh yeah. I definitely should be fired. Um, <laughs> no, no idea what's going on. I, I honestly, I'm concerned. I know we're going to get into this, so I won't waste a lot of the time now, but I really don't think it's knowable. I think, you know, we're waiting for a couple people to make up their mind about a couple things. And, and that's, I don't know if those people know which direction we're heading. All right. Well, we will indeed get back to that in just a moment. First, to set up this episode, let me just note that this is now just over a year since President Joe Biden was inaugurated. So today on the podcast, we're actually going to take a look back at his first year in office and in particular look at what he's been able to achieve on climate and some things where he hasn't maybe been so successful. Everyone will remember that he ran on a big climate platform. Uh, it was a top issue among Democratic voters. And so we'll check out later on in the show where President Joe Biden has sort of landed in following through on his commitments. But first, as we just hinted to there, you know, it's impossible to ignore the action on Capitol Hill. 
And so anyone following this space will know that just before the holidays, Senator Joe Manchin announced that he is a no on the Build Back Better Act, which is the Democrats' marquee bill to pass a range of social and environmental programs. So that news came out. We talked on the show about it at the time. Brandon, you made the point at that moment that calmer heads would likely prevail after some time off over the holiday break. But we haven't quite seen Senate Democrats get back to the negotiating table. At least they are not talking about that publicly. We did hear President Joe Biden introduce the idea of breaking up the Build Back Better Act and passing the climate provisions as a separate package, indicating they would have more support on their own. Here's a clip from that press conference. Uh, it's clear to me that, uh, um, that we're going to have to uh, probably uh, break it up. Um, I think that we can get, and I've been talking to a number of my colleagues on the Hill, I think it's, it's clear that we would be able to get support for the for the 500 plus billion dollars for uh, energy and the environmental issues that are there. All right, Shane, over to you. We heard President Joe Biden there talk about breaking up Bill Back Better. Since then, Senator Manchin has actually said that even if they do revisit a new version of this, they'd have to, quote, start from scratch. So what is your read on where things stand? Yeah, thanks, Julia. So first, I think it's way too early to say that that Brandon's projections were wrong. I think we're going to see a lot of back and forth before we actually know, you know, what the outcome is here. Uh, I wanted to spell one notion right up front because I, I've heard a lot of confusion in the media and, and with other individuals who work in our industry. And people say, well, you can't do it in chunks because then you need 60 votes and you need 10 Republicans. The process doesn't work. Uh, Speaker Pelosi said something similar. So there's two things that I think we need to bifurcate. One is that it is true that you can pass one bill with 50 votes, and then you would need 60 votes if you wanted to pass other bills unless you passed another budget resolution first. I don't think that's what the president was saying. I think what he was saying is let's identify what can get 50 votes. Let's get that on the floor. Let's get it passed. And then we can pursue our other objectives as well. So I think it's kind of a, a cheap way out when people say, well, can't do it in chunks so nothing's happening. There is still a very real likelihood that there can be a bill passed that has a lot of the stuff that we talk about on this show, which is the energy and climate provisions. So zooming in on that, where, where do we stand there? What does Wait, that can mean? Can I ask one clarifying question? Absolutely. Why would someone say that you cannot break it up? Because that would lose the ability to use the reconciliation process by breaking it up? Yeah, it wouldn't be privileged anymore. So if you passed one bill, that would utilize the reconciliation instruction that you adopted in your budget resolution. That's gone. So now the only way to get another reconciliation instruction is to pass another budget resolution that has reconciliation instructions that has to be formally adopted. And then you'd start from scratch and go through the process again. But the implication there is that you can't do anything if you break it into chunks. And that's not true. It's once you pass one thing, then you wouldn't be able to go to the child tax credit or something else like that and bring that up under a 50 vote threshold. So it is true that you couldn't vote on several chunks with 50 votes, but it's not true that if you break it up into chunks, you can't vote on any of it without 60 votes. You could still get your core climate package. And I think based on my read of the president's speech, that's what he was alluding to. Okay, sorry. So I derailed you there for a second, Shane. Where do you think things are headed now? So... We know that before we left for the holiday break, uh, Senator Manchin said he wasn't going to do this at all. We also know, though, that he had privately communicated to the president, which we did not know at the time, that he was willing to do a smaller, more focused bill. So when the president came back and, and gave the press conference and indicated that he was open to a smaller bill that focused on climate and clean energy, I, like a lot of other people in the advocacy community, I think viewed that as a really positive space because it gave Democrats 
the permission structure that they needed to move forward with that climate bill. I think some Democrats were concerned that because the president ran on the child tax credit and because he'd been talking about it, if they had broken that out of the package without his permission, they would be sort of getting into conflict with their own president. So I think what he did there was gave Senate Democrats permission to move forward on an energy and climate bill with his support so that it could be a positive thing that everyone was doing together rather than, oh, well, you shrunk the president's bill and you don't support the president. So I thought that was really positive. Unfortunately, regardless of one's political views, once they forced a vote with a 50 vote threshold on the voting rights legislation, they managed to anger Manchin once again. So now instead of saying he could focus on a smaller bill, he was very dismissive in any sort of press gaggle he had the day after that vote. And he said a few things that are totally impossible to achieve. So first he said, you need to start on a blank piece of paper. Then he said, COVID needs to be gone. Then he said the national debt needs to be gone. Now, if anyone pays attention, there's a huge difference between the debt and the deficit. A deficit can be eliminated through tax hikes or spending cuts. The debt has been accruing for over 100 years. So you can't get rid of the national debt. That's just not something that's possible. And then he said inflation needs to recede. So if you have to do those four things, there is no way in, there's no possible way, how about that, to use clean language, that that can get done. I don't view that as him ending the negotiations. I view that as him blowing off steam because they did put him in a spot. If you put the Voting Rights Act up on a 60-vote threshold, you get to say, Republicans screwed us, right? But when you do it on a 50-vote threshold, it's Manchin and Cinema screwed us. And that's not like a really good position to put people that you need their votes in. So having said that, I'm still a believer that we're at a 50 to 65% chance that we see a package. I think we can say people can blow off steam. They have the right to do that. That doesn't mean the package is, is totally closed. And before I drone on for too long, I'll give our listeners just three key reasons that I believe Manchin will still support a package. The reasons are that there is likely to be a tax extenders package no matter what. At the end of the year, after the election, that happens all the time. This is just where uh, existing tax provisions and tax credits specifically for clean energy often get extended, right? They tack on a couple more years, maybe a phase down, but that would be what would happen during the lame duck, right? Yeah, the solar ITC, the wind PTC, these were all temporary programs that have continually been extended through year-end tax extenders package. And what that means is they basically strike the date and they add a new date. So it extends the package years into the road. Those get several votes. They don't get, you know, 50 votes. They get 75 votes. And so you're going to have Republican support there. So in a package like that, Manchin doesn't have any leverage to sort of shoehorn in some of the things that he cares about. They've got plenty of votes. They can pass it without him. So if I'm Manchin, I certainly want to pass a bill where I decide what's in and what's out. The second thing is that package will not include three key provisions that are critically important to him. An extenders package doesn't create new law, it just extends existing law. And so he's very excited about the Section 48C tax credit that he worked on with Senator Daines from Montana. That's a clean energy manufacturing tax credit, but half of the money, $4 billion of that money goes into coal communities, which is very beneficial to West Virginia. He's very excited about hydrogen. There's a hydrogen production tax credit in the Build Back Better Act. It's $3 per kilogram. That's incredibly generous. That doesn't exist in current law. And then the Section 45Q uh, carbon capture and sequestration credit, that does exist in current law, but the Build Back Better Act expands it significantly and makes it more valuable. So my view on Joe Manchin is if he does nothing now, the wind and solar credits will probably be extended anyway. His vote won't have the currency it does now, and he doesn't get any of the new programs that could really be meaningful to West Virginia. I don't want to drone on any longer, but that is why I remain confident that he will find a way to get to yes on a narrow energy and climate package. All right. That's why you pay him the big bucks, Brandon. 
I thought that was pretty helpful on Manchin. And, you know, you can understand what Manchin is doing because the more he opposes Democrats, the more popular he gets in West Virginia because it's a very Republican state. Uh, there was a New York Times article recently where they did a focus group and they had 15 independents, people who voted for Trump and Obama. And they asked this group of 15, who would you vote for president, Trump or Biden or Manchin? And Manchin won that vote. So I understand his political incentives there. Shane, what do you think Kirsten Cinema is doing? I think you could beat Kirsten Cinema in a Democratic primary right now in Arizona. <laughs> She's polling at like 8%. What is her strategy? Well, you know, I don't know what her strategy is. I mean, there's the sort of altruistic way to look at it, and there's the more skeptical way to look at it. I mean, there's one way to say that she's doing what she thinks is right, and you could just put that in a bucket, and that could be the end of the conversation. I've also read articles. I don't claim to have any knowledge or even know any of the people who have contributed to these articles, but Brandon, you've seen them too in our company Slack page about positioning herself to be the person that centrists like, and I don't mean centrist Democrats, I mean centrist everyone's. So if you're not for Donald Trump and you're not for you know a progressive agenda, but you're sort of for a stay the course, uh, find commonplace with your opposition and all that good stuff, maybe she's trying to position herself for, for a larger run in the future. I don't think, though, that Senator Cinema is the obstacle to build back better. I know that, Brandon, you all have been focused a lot on, on the voting rights activity and the filibuster, and I know that she is probably the primary opponent to those provisions. But I, I don't think she is really you know, serving as an obstacle to build back better for what it's worth. Interesting. Brandon, what do you think about the fact that Democrats pushed ahead with voting rights legislation, knowing or maybe not knowing that that would bother Manchin? sort of calling him out. Was that the right political move, you think? Or did they just jeopardize their climate package by doing that? It's very important to the Democratic base. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure on Biden to address this issue. It didn't really work out because, A, it did not pass because all the Republicans obstructed it. And there's the filibuster in place and Manchin and Cinema refused to amend the filibuster to make it like a talking filibuster, which is very frustrating. Uh, he also didn't really win any points with the base because they felt like he came at this too late. And so if there's one mistake there, what might have been a better strategy is Biden might have been able to tackle this at the beginning of his presidency a year ago when he took office because you were coming right off of January 6th. And it was very fresh in people's minds. And there was for a moment there, you had a few Republicans who actually publicly opposed Trump uh, and his role in it. And so maybe if you had said, look, we've got to address the economy, we've got to address COVID and the pandemic, but most crucial first step is we have to save our democracy and we have to reform that with voting rights and make it easier for people to vote. That might have been a different strategy that we'll never know, but one that I think people will be thinking about. So what's your outlook, Brandon? Do you have uh, Shane's view on just over 50 plus percent chance this happens? Are you more optimistic that a climate standalone package happens with this $500 billion worth of programs we've talked about? I don't know if we'll have a standalone, but I think I agree with everything that Shane said about Joe Manchin. It would help if President Biden had his numbers were higher. Uh, right now, his polling numbers are lower, which does not really meet the reality of some of 
amazing accomplishments he's had in the first year. There's really a mismatch between the facts of what's happened in the last year and the public perception of Joe Biden. I mean, uh, unemployment is at like an all-time low. The child poverty rate is at an all-time low. He created 6.4 million jobs in the first year, which is a record. Uh, he passed significant climate legislation within the infrastructure bill, a couple hundred billion dollars in investments in climate that we've talked about on the show, and he got 19 Republicans to vote on that. 75% of all adults are now vaccinated. So, you know, if you look at those numbers, he had a pretty good first year, but his numbers are low and the perception of him, you know, is affecting his leverage on this, I think, a little bit. But I think Shane's right that something will get done. I think energy and climate, you know, we've talked about the power of this political, you know, organizations that we've been building in climate over several years. It's become a really effective advocacy movement. And I think that's going to contribute to energy and climate staying in the mix for some slimmed down version of Build Back Better. Well, you kind of teed up the next segment of our show there, Brandon, but I want to give Shane the final word on what to expect on Build Back Better. Brandon just said there, maybe not a standalone climate bill. What's your final read on what this looks like at the end of the day, Shane? It's tough because I think, you know, what Brandon hit on is important that you can't do only exclusively energy and climate just because it doesn't really work that way when you look at pay fors. So a lot of the energy policy is in the tax section of the bill. And if you're going to have what's, what are called tax expenditures, meaning that you're giving credits or reducing you know, tax liability, then you have to have tax increases or some sort of revenue mechanism if you want it to score you know, as, as revenue neutral. And they're not going to raise taxes on energy at the same time as they cut taxes on energy. So there are going to be other sort of industries that get touched by this. And the current construct of the bill sort of gives everyone something to like, even if you have something to not like. But if you're the pay for and you're not getting any of the benefit, that's going to be concerning to you. So I'm not exactly sure how they do this. You could very well see how a $250 billion to $550 billion energy and climate package could get put you know, together. But you'd really have to lean on like a corporate tax hike or some small adjustments to the personal income brackets. Because if you go tax an industry that's totally unrelated to the energy industry to pay for energy credits, um, that's, not going to, that's not going to be a good look. I think they'll figure it out. I think there's a lot of levers you can pull. As people know, you know, CBO is projected, whether it's CBO or, or Joint Committee on Taxation. It's all projections. There are different levers you can use. But I, I imagine it can't be far more expansive than energy and climate because I just don't think there's a ton of agreement there. And finally, when would this go down? I've heard something like March 1st is a time for the Senate to revisit Build Back Better. I'm not sure if that's true or not. I know there are it can't industry be. initiatives to shine a light on different elements of the bill and get more public awareness around it. Where does this land on timing, Shane? It, it can't. So I, I, I can't, you know, at all predict the political timing, meaning, you know, when the, the, the Why not? Why will... can't you just do that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, but what we know is that there's still process that has to get done no matter what. Even if Manchin today said, I'm ready to vote. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Let's go. There's just a lot of process that has to play out. They never finished the parliamentarian scrub. So the Democrats walk their bill through the parliamentarian. And then there's, you know, sort of a litigation process where Republicans raise objections and they actually have sort of an adversarial experience. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. So that's just something that eats up clock, even if, you know, it all goes the right way. The more time passes, like if we get into quarter two, they might have to rescore some of these provisions just because of changing macroeconomic inputs that CBO and, and JCT use. So 
we all, and I don't mean like we on political climate, but we, the American public, will have a pretty good sense of when these things get back on the table because they'll, they'll have to rebegin that process. And they're not waiting for Manchin to vote yes. Once they get back into negotiations, they have to start re-scrubbing this bill. So it's going to take weeks no matter what. But what they can target for March 1st for the president's State of the Union is an agreement so that the president can say, we found agreement, we've got a path forward, here's what we're going to do. They'd still have to do those things, but they could find agreement by March 1st. I don't think they can pass a bill. I'm old enough to remember the framework agreement that we had. <laughs> what do you mean? That, is that the, the Boehner Obama? No, well, that too. But remember on Build Back Better, there was the $1.75 trillion framework that was announced last fall that gave us so much hope you know, that we were going to have this thing passed. They were just working out the details. Oh, yeah. Back in the good old days and we were on the cusp of passing this Build Back Better Act yeah. <laughs> of a few weeks ago. Let's shift now to what Biden has achieved in the, and the Democrats collectively. And you mentioned there, Brandon, the infrastructure bill, because that is a framework that did become actual law. So let's turn there now. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy compared to the state's average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Fish Tank PR is a public relations and marketing firm that was listed as one of Inc. Magazine's 5,000 fastest growing businesses in America last year. As the clean tech and sustainability sectors have boomed, so has Fish Tank. But unlike many large PR firms, the Fish Tank team has been immersed in clean tech for more than a decade, delivering results for clients ranging from renewable energy producers and software platforms to battery manufacturers and green builders. From PR and digital marketing to content writing, the team at Fish Tank helps you develop a strategy of bringing your work to not only wider audiences, but the right audience. They'll listen and learn about the work you're doing on the ground as part of the climate tech revolution and translate that into visibility and strong narratives for your projects. To learn more about Fish Tank's approach to clean tech and services, go to fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com forward slash canary. So here we are one year into the Biden administration officially, just over one year. And it's kind of amazing. It feels like it's been both a very long time and a very short time at the same time. So first, just to give everyone a sense of what has happened on the climate and energy front, here's a bit of a rundown. First of all, President Biden, through executive order, passed an economy-wide net-zero greenhouse gas goal by 2050, including 50% from 2005 levels by 2030 and net-zero electricity in 2035. These would be obligations to meet the Paris Agreement, but again, that's under executive order. So what else can the federal government do? He stepped in and made a pledge for the government itself to be carbon neutral by 2050. 
That includes a 100% carbon pollution-free electricity standard by 2030, at least half of which will be locally supplied clean energy to meet 24-7 demand. And just for reference, the federal government's responsible for just about a percent and a half of the nation's energy consumption. So it is both significant that the federal government's leading, but also a small portion of the nation's actual emissions. Another thing the government pledged to do is buy 100% zero emission vehicles by 2035, including 100% zero emission light duty vehicles. Uh, These are not small commitments. The federal government bought only 650 EVs last fiscal year of the roughly 50,000 vehicles that they typically buy in a given year. So getting up to 100% of those being EVs would be a major commitment and I think a big boost for the market overall. Another couple items here, net zero emissions from federal procurement no later than 2050, a net zero emissions building portfolio by 2045, and the list goes on on the federal government side. Before I go on to regulation, Brandon, do you have thoughts on that and, and what it means for the government to step in and make some purchasing commitments? Sure. The government can be a first adopter and be a model for how big corporations can procure and think about their supply chain to become net zero on you know what they call the scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. The government can be a leader on you know what we call 24-7 clean energy, which is different than just buying the renewable energy credits. Um, so that's a movement that the government can sort of lead the way on. Uh, and Julia, you know, he also got us back into Paris. Uh, that was a big deal as well. And he's doing permitting on offshore wind, you know, growing that industry as well. So there are actually, if you sort of peel back the onion a little bit, there's a lot that Joe Biden has done on climate in his first year. Yeah. And I think just to rattle off a few more of those developments, one is on the regulatory side. He had a campaign promise to rebuild the EPA, uh, which President Trump had sort of taken an approach to weaken during his presidency. Uh, So one of the first decisions for the Biden's EPA administrator, Michael Reagan, was to disband and reconstitute the agency's main science advisory board, which had been stacked with industry-friendly scientists for a time. Reagan also reversed a controversial secret science rule put in place under President Trump that would have prevented the agency from considering non-public data when crafting regulations. And although the administration has announced regulations targeting cars and methane emissions, another thing that the U.S. committed to globally and we've talked about on the show— The EPA has yet to address the impact of power plants, which could be crucial to meeting other Biden goals. So both some areas of progress on the regulatory side, again, cars and methane, but still waiting to see if there'll be additional action on the power plant and electricity side. But those secret elements, not so secret, but the behind the scenes elements, I think, are are interesting there and rebuilding the power of what an agency like the EPA can do. Yeah. And Michael Regan is a good example of the diversity that Joe Biden has promoted across his administration, both at the leadership level, at the cabinet level, throughout the staff, and making Justice 40 and equity, you know, a centerpiece of his climate agenda in a way that no other president has done. So that's another accomplishment in the first year. Yeah, I think another one of those quiet accomplishments is that climate change was centered in an all-of-government approach. And we kind of hear that, but there was a piece in Time magazine recently to sort of wrap up 2021 that interviewed White House leaders like Ali Zaidi and Gina McCarthy and asked them how they'd been working on that. And it really does involve meeting with all these other types of government agencies from finance to housing and figuring out where climate is relevant to their daily work and infusing climate policies into those other planning processes and regulations, which I think is something we'll see more of as the months and years go on, but definitely a change of course on how climate is addressed. Yeah, let me just say too that there's there's sort of a, a good sort of pro and con there. I think one of the things is I'd love to see the government use its procurement power 
you know, more vastly because that is something that is unilaterally under its control. So the more quickly they ramp up, like the procurement of EVs and, and those types of things would be really good. There's a lot of great technologies being manufactured in the United States right now, whether they be storage technologies, transportation technologies, a lot of cool stuff that I'd love to see the government make better use of because it is such a large, it has such a large footprint and is such a large emitter. And those things would be very consistent uh, with this administration. Also, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act has a lot of dollars that can go out to facilitate some of these investments, which would be fantastic. And the administration, I can you know say from experience, is putting out a lot of RFIs, requests for information, where you're trying to put forward you know all the information they need so that they can announce how they're going to disperse that funding. So you want to give them credit for looking at all those different aspects of how money should be spent and how you impact a wide range of communities, you know, in a positive way. And they should, you know, be congratulated for that. At the same time, they got to get this money out the door. I mean, this money has to get out and start doing the things it's supposed to do, get EV charging networks all across the country, build these great sort of renewable energy projects that I think when people see them, they're going to like them, but it, it just has to happen. And Brandon, I know you have this experience from uh, the original um, Stimulus Act back when you were working for the Obama administration. But I mean, can you weigh in a little bit on that? Like, what is your view on how quickly they need to start getting money out the door so that people can feel the benefits of some of these dollars that are being spent? And talk about the benefits that are being you know, brought to bear. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there's a tension between you want to move really quickly to get those benefits, especially with November, uh, we're, we're in an election year. Uh, you've got to move that money. You've got to have people feel it and talk about it, as you're both saying. Uh, you also can't be reckless with taxpayer money. You have to move that money in an efficient way uh, without corruption or abuse or any of that. And Did Brandon you know, you just have become a, massive- a Republican? Are you changing your registration? (laughs) That is not true. (laughs) You know, I've always been against, we were very careful about that in the Recovery Act. We did a great job. Uh, But, you know, getting your arms around that bureaucracy and making it move in that way is a very tough job. I think there's a lot of people in the Biden administration that worked in the Obama administration on the Recovery Act and can bring those lessons learned. But I also, you know, it doesn't seem like they were ready for a lot of this. Uh, they're still building the Office of Clean Energy, you know, demonstrations as we speak, you know, and so uh, they've got to hire the leadership team and then hire the you know 300 people for that office and the thousand people across the DOE. And I can tell you from my work, they're hiring people in the federal government is ridiculously hard. It's a big pain in the ass. And so why? Why is be, it so hard? Is, I mean, people listening might want to go apply to these jobs. Check out Jigger Shaw's latest video on LinkedIn talking about the great benefits of working for the Department of Energy. What actually makes it hard, though, getting those people on board? So there's a couple different types of jobs. One is a political appointee position. Uh, that is where, you know, the president appoints you. There's a, about 2,000 of those in the federal government. Some of them are Senate confirmed. So if you're in one of those positions, you've got to get, you know, the Senate to sign off on your confirmation, which that is a whole process unto itself. Uh, If you're not Senate confirmed, you still have to go through the political appointee process, which involves agency folks and White House personnel folks, you know, coming to an agreement on your candidacy for that position. And then there's the whole civil service, which is the majority of where the two million plus workforce of the federal government 
you know, works. And that process uh, just has, you know, there's good intentions in it because they want to show preference for like veterans, for instance. But because of so many different parts of that process, it just creates a a long lag time uh, to make it through. And now with some of these jobs that they're hiring for the infrastructure implementation, they have uh, adjusted some of the rules to be able to make it you know, somewhat easier. Uh, so hopefully that will have the impact that they're hoping for. Got it. And just a reminder, the infrastructure bill, that's another major win for the Biden administration at the end of the day. It was the bipartisan bill he said he would get and actually you know, didn't shy away from criticism on his own party that he would get that. Um, and it was $1.2 trillion overall for infrastructure. And $80 billion or so of that is to advance clean energy and, and help fight climate change. Canary Media has some great reporting on the infrastructure bill. We'll link to uh, at least one or two articles in our show notes. Um, so that is definitely a major a major thing to note about the first year in office and something that weirdly the Biden administration, I think, hasn't talked about enough, but maybe will more so once Bill Backbetter is a little more out of the news. Yeah, but if you're a listener, I encourage you, like Jigger, to apply. Uh, the DOE put out a, a big portal that you can go through. You can get through. You can be a part of the federal government. And then, you know, if Shane's party takes over in the midterms, you know, they'll create fake scandals and haul you up there and make your life miserable. <laughs> wow. First of all, great advertisement, Brandon. Wonder why it's so hard to get people to join the government. Also, no, you can be a career staffer and keep fighting the good fight no matter who's in office. Uh, I'm just playing. Yeah, and just because you mentioned Jigger, I do want to say that like he's a good example of he understands like he's going to play by the rules, but he's trying. He's proactively trying to get this money out the door and get some of these cool technologies funded. Uh, I'd love to see more of that. Obviously, there are guardrails. Obviously, you want to make sure that you're being responsible with taxpayer money. Um, but the reality of it is, this money's already been authorized, right? It's already been made available. Like, let's do some cool stuff. I, I want Jigger's mentality to start floating across. The- yeah, Shane, what would you do if you what what do you think they could be doing better? How do you feel about Biden's presidency this far? Well, I mean, I don't think we we need to have that conversation fully at this moment point in time because you know, I I really do separate more or less my political sort of instincts from my energy work because the things that I care about in the energy space, reducing emissions, decarbonization, electrification, addressing climate change, protecting the environment. I love open spaces, you know, separate and apart, so conservation. They just not all of them obviously align align with what the Republican Party is doing today. I would actually argue that they very much align with conservative principles and what the Republican Party should be doing back to Teddy Roosevelt, but they don't. And so I, I spend a lot of my time obviously navigating Democratic offices, this administration, and I'm excited about a lot of the cool things they're doing. A lot of the other things going on in the world, uh, are, you know, I probably would handle very differently than the current administration, but that's okay. Uh, I want to see them execute on the dollars that they have now, which, by the way, were passed on a bipartisan basis. Whether you're looking at appropriated dollars, uh, which are passed with CRs pretty much, and they're using a Republican bill for what it's worth, or you're looking at the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which was a product of, I think, 10 you know, senators, five from each party, really getting together and, and, and doing some great work. And you can see that that goodwill holds up. Like I was reading an article about Mark Kelly's election today and Mitt Romney was saying, you know, this is a guy you can trust. This is a guy you can work with. This is a guy who cares about the people of Arizona. 
that's really meaningful. Like th- those words from Mitt Romney are definitely going to be used in ads in Arizona. So I know I didn't directly answer your question, Brandon. There's a lot probably I would have done differently across a wide range of issues. But I do think their mentality is right around energy policy. And I just want to see them take that mentality and turn it into action. Yeah, I was going to ask about the energy policy in Europe right now with Russia, you know, threatening invasion to Ukraine. Like, what do you do there if you're Joe Biden? I mean, what can you do now? I think you could have shut down Nord Stream 2 when he came into office. I think he was actually sort of required to by statute for what it's worth, or at least place heavy sanctions on it, but uh, didn't. And now, I mean, we're talking about a potential hot war on the, on the border of Ukraine. Like, there's there's not a whole lot you can do to think about, you know, what, what are gas prices? I, I mean, natural gas, not gasoline uh, in Europe at the moment. Like, I have I don't fancy myself a geopolitical expert, but I, I imagine as Russia is getting ready to invade and we're sending troops over there and evacuating our diplomats, the discussion on energy policy is probably very secondary. Well, and it's definitely up there because I think they're already looking at other ways to get gas to Europe right now. You have to have contingencies in place. And it just feels like how did no one in Europe or the U.S. like expect this and why we have alternatives available. There could have been a slowing of even some of the energy transition policies, specifically around nuclear power in Germany. You have to wonder, was that the right move uh, now that they're facing this energy crunch? But yeah, not my area of expertise, but certainly feels frustrating that this, you know, as if this could have been avoided in some way, at least the vulnerability level that there is now among our allies. Well, speaking of, of fossil fuels, one thing I do want to point out that the Biden administration did in the first year was approve more drilling permits on public lands than the Trump administration did each year during its first three years in office. That's according to a Washington Post analysis. So it is interesting that as the Biden administration has reentered the Paris Agreement, because of these global shocks to the fossil fuel system and changes in demand and prices and the impacts on consumers, you've seen them nonetheless support fossil fuel development, even calling during Paris to the global community to keep producing oil and gas. So it has been a bit of an all of the above approach, despite really strong leadership on climate and clean energy. Well, and Julia, this year, I think has been a good reminder, and I'm not advocating for anything here, but of why, you know, and all of the above approach has been favored in the past because we're asking OPEC to increase oil production when, you know, we could be the largest oil producer in the world. Not arguing that we should be, just saying that we could be. And so when you have commodity price swings, it creates political problems in every country. And that's very real, right? I mean, same with natural gas prices. They're lower here in the U.S. than they are uh, in other parts of the Western world because we have such abundant supplies. And so I don't know the long-term answer. But I do know that, you know, even this current administration is asking some of our certainly not allies, but but maybe sort of global foes to put oil on the market to help reduce pain on American consumers. And that is a very, very tricky dynamic. I have no answers here, but I do want to flag that as we saw some things that we never would have expected two years ago. The response to it was even weirder than I would have imagined. And I'm not even saying bad, just different. I don't think we've asked OPEC for a whole lot in the past. And, and so... The global energy market is very, very complex. And anyone who argues that it isn't just really isn't paying attention. And as we move forward with energy policy, we want a clean energy economy here. We want to export the technology for a clean energy economy abroad. But I do think we have to be practical and mindful in everything that we do because it is a global economy and very small hiccups in faraway corners of the world can create very large problems for American consumers and our allies. It's pretty amazing what's happening with EVs right now. I mean, by the time you're all listening to this show, uh, you will have seen the news that 
President Biden uh, is meeting with several CEOs, including GM CEO Mary Barra, uh, who's going to announce 4,000 more jobs to manufacture electric vehicles by expanding their manufacturing footprint in the U.S. They're investing you know, so many more billions of dollars over the next few years to electrify their product. And you have like 80 models of EVs coming out, new models coming out in the next two or three years. So it's really exciting time for clean transportation. And that's going to affect the demand for oil going forward. I mean, that's the only option we have, right, is to start getting the global economy, the global economy off of fossil fuels to be less vulnerable to these price shocks and things like that. And that goes for buildings as well, for heating and cooling. Um, But in the meantime, we are very much in this transition. And I think that the approval of, of drilling permits is sort of a testament to that. I do just want to say on Biden's first year, he did issue an executive order instructing the Interior Department to pause all new leases and sales on public lands for oil and and gas development. That was then challenged in court. So I believe there's an appeal process now as to where that goes. The Biden administration did also cancel the Keystone XL permit. So again, there's sort of this one step forward, one step back, and a little bit of a muddled response here as we figure out really what this transition looks like. Yeah, Shane, what's your boy Tucker saying about Biden and what he's doing on energy? Is he blaming all of this inflation on, you know, Biden's policies there? Well, it might surprise you to know that I'm not as loyal of a listener as I as I used to be, but... Um... But <laughs> what happened? What changed? What happened between you and Tucker Carlson? I, I would argue that that his show is is quite different than it used to. Be. I used to really admire his depth of knowledge, both you know in domestic and international affairs. I think he's probably a brilliant man. I don't know that for sure. I don't know him well, but his ability to reference history off the cuff always blew my mind, and is something that I aspired to be able to do. He, he seems like Trump on TV over the last you know couple of years, as far as I can tell. It's more about like prodding people's sort of instinctual, visceral reactions on hot button issues than it is about me learning about you know what happened in Russia in the 1980s. And so you know it's not as fun for me. But having said that, I don't think he's highly focused on like the practical. You know what I mean? I I think they're talking about totally different things, and I can't tell you that for sure without getting on and watching or listening, but. I don't think it's sort of a day-to-day discussion about current affairs. I think he likes to pick issues and just sort of hammer at them. Which I think is a good topic to end on. It's hard to ignore anyway of what's happening among Republicans now. President Biden in that recent press conference we referenced said, what do they stand for? You know, like here we are picking apart the Biden administration's policies, but he would call out that he doesn't know what Republicans stand for. Mind you, they did vote for several of them voted for the infrastructure bill. But we're also, as we talk about Biden's first year in office, have to talk about the January 6th anniversary. And even you mentioned Tucker Carlson criticizing Ted Cruz on on criticizing the people who stormed the Capitol. So I guess, Shane, I know you can't speak for all Republicans or have a total crystal ball on this, but to just answer the president's question, what do Republicans stand for now when it comes to substance? I mean, that's an impossible question because I almost think of Republicans more as a coalition than as a unified party. Um, I think there are, you know, old school conservatives like me who think of republicanism as a combination of Theodore Roosevelt sort of conservation and Reaganomics. Um, that is that is what I view as the Republican Party, or at least, you know, the one that I came into and the one that I still believe in. Um, I think there is a huge portion of the party that is um, the Trump party. And so I don't think they're hyper-focused on like an ideology as much as an adherence to whatever it is that that, that sort of individual or, or the people who follow that individual, you know, stand for, I couldn't articulate, I can articulate, you know, a conservative ideology. 
I can't articulate for you sort of a foundational belief shared across everyone in the Republican Party today. And I, and I don't think that's only true on our side for what it's worth. I think there's, you know, you look at Democrats, there's moderate Democrats, there's progressive Democrats. I wouldn't argue that Joe Manchin and, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have a ton in common. I think that's that's true on our side as well. All right. Well, I think we'll leave this episode there. Brandon, do you want a final word to close us out? No, I just think it's really interesting to think about why Biden's numbers are where they are. Um, you have a conservative media machine that is basically an arm of the party and doesn't get any of the facts that we talked about on the show today. Um, you know, they just get Biden's a socialist, hates America, hates you. And then you've got another third that relies on the mainstream media uh, where you get a very filtered message and sometimes they want to compensate for maybe their personal beliefs by being, you know, holding the president to a different standard than they would for other politicians. And then you get a bunch of people that just aren't paying attention and they're kind of bummed out about the pandemic. This has been a tough time for a lot of people. People have a lot of burden, especially you know, families with children trying to navigate this, trying to navigate all these decisions about schools and does my kid go or not? Shane could talk a lot more about that than I can, of course. Uh, and then you've got, you know, prices are higher. And so people are thinking about that at the kitchen table. And so that all has come together for uh, a very you know, tough political environment right now for Democrats as we you know, are now in this election year. So it's going to be interesting to see how the next year really unfolds um, and how Democrats are going to meet these challenges because the incumbent party usually has problems in the midterms and uh, you have some of these mega trends you don't have a lot of control over. But you have a lot of good stuff that has happened. And how do we communicate that to the voters and deliver that message, especially on climate, which is becoming uh, a bigger issue than ever? We're you know going to have more extreme weather events again this year. And think about last year, all the costs that we suffered, you know, for those uh, weather events that you know people are experiencing on a more regular basis. So it's been a good year to be with you both uh, on the on the pod this year. I'm looking forward to a lot more in 2022 with both of you. All right. I think we got to leave it there. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, so that's the end of our show, folks. Uh, thanks, everyone, so much for listening. I have to give a shout out to our producer, Maria Virginia Alano, who does a great job preparing us for this show and also the whole team at Canary Media that helps get this show out into the world. Also to our editor, Kyle McDonald, and also to the USC Schwarzenegger Institute for their support. Remember, if you haven't hit subscribe yet, do that wherever you get podcasts. You can find Political Smash Climate. It. Smash it. <laughs> like hey, it, Julie, follow it. I figured out why my audio sucks so bad on the last podcast. Why is that? There's like an on-off button on this microphone. I think it was off. <laughs> We've been doing this three years, oh folks, gosh. but we're still figuring out the microphones. <laughs> not, not, Excellent. We can leave that there for now, but I'm not leaving that there. <laughs> this is going to come up for a while. So, great. I think you just convinced everyone not to subscribe to our show. Thank you. Come back again soon. Or not. I'm not the technical person. Not the technical guy. Not the technical guy. He's just here for his looks, folks. He's the face. <laughs> um, thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll leave it there. Goodbye.